And here we go. You are listening to Law and Gospel on this Rumination Tuesday, September the 15th in the year of our Lord 2020. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and my co-host is Pastor Mark Smith. Hi, Mark. Hey, Tom. How you doing today? Well, I'll have to tell you after the program, this is a 10-stanza hymn. I don't know if we're going to get through it, but let me explain a little bit about the author. His name is Paul Speratus, S-P-E-R-A-T-U-S. He was born in 1484 and died in 1551. And that's interesting because Luther was born in 1483 and died in 1546. Now, Paul Sparatus studied at French, Italian, and German universities, uh, became a doctor of canon law, and also got a doctorate in theology at the University of Vienna. He was ordained in 1506, but remember, this was Roman Catholic, and charges of heresy were against him, for he criticized the prohibition of clerical marriage. Remember, priests aren't able to be married. But Martin Luther got involved, and his writings exerted influence over Sparatus' preaching during this time. In fact, he also suffered imprisonment for his views uh, because he was running a fall of county authorities. He ended up occupying himself with the translation of several of Luther's publications from Latin into German. He was finally appointed Bishop of Pomazania, and that's now in Poland. But his crowning achievement, his crowning hymn, is a recitation of the key points in Luther's theology, uh, which was salvation unto us has come. And it's the most influential influential, and sung widely among at least seven hymns that he composed. Now, it's a great I want to, yes, it certainly is. Salvation unto us has come. Now, in 1523, Luther had expressed concern that there was a strong desire for hymns in the vernacular, but there were not many poets at that time able to do that. And I was unaware of this, but the first Lutheran hymnal had eight hymns, and two of them, according to my notes, were on the same tune. And that was, of course, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice by Luther, and then Salvation Unto Us Has Come. And in that book, it's called the Eight Hymn Book. Three of the eight hymns were published in this first Lutheran hymnal by Paul Sparatus. It's kind of interesting that he's got a whole bunch of, um, how shall I put it, uh, negative kinds of things uh, uh, against Roman Catholic theology 
because it's really based on the Augsburg Confession. And there are, in one German translation, a hundred Bible verses behind this hymn. So we're ready to go to it now. I don't know if we'll get it done because originally it had 12 stanzas and in our hymnal there are 10 stanzas. Uh, when, when would you sing this? Oh, usually around Reformation time. Right. In, in fact, it is the hymn of the day for this coming Sunday, but it's an alternate hymn for the day of Reformation. But 10 verses, how would you have your congregation sing all 10? Oh, boy. I, I, you, could, you could split it up. You could have them sing half of them before the sermon and half of them afterward. Right. Or you could use it as the Lord's Supper hymn. Distribution yes. hymn, right. All right. Why don't you go ahead with the first stanza? Okay. Salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. Good works cannot avert our doom. They help and save us never. Faith looks to Jesus Christ alone, who did for all the world atone. He is our one Redeemer. What we have here is a chief doctrine of the Lutheran Reformation, namely justification by grace through faith. In fact, what he does is he takes the Augsburg Confession, which proclaims that doctrine, and puts it in poetic form. And I believe that's one of the reasons why it's one of the best known hymns uh, from the Reformation period. What would you say about stanza one that you like best? Well, I mean, it, it, it just starts us off by salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. Good works has nothing to do with our salvation. They're, they're important, and God, God bids us to do them, but our, our salvation is, is established apart from good works. Yes, in God, fact, the good, good works, works cannot avert our doom. Yes, in fact, good works cannot occur until after you have been totally saved. Right. And I like the first part of that line. Uh, salvation unto us has come. In other words, salvation isn't something that we invent. It actually comes to us. And it shows that that is a wonderful gift that we receive and not that we form by inviting Christ into our heart or anything like that. And, and notice what faith looks to. Jesus Christ alone. Yes. He's our only Savior. He's yes. our one Redeemer. All right. And, and, that he, and that he redeemed the whole world. Yes. All Verse right. Number two. Yep. Stanza two, what God did in his law demand, and none to him could render, caused wrath and, and wrath and woe on every hand for man the vile offender. Our flesh has not those pure desires the spirit of the law requires, and lost is our condition. I have been saying this for a long time that when God regards you as doing a good work, he doesn't look at the action. 
the word or the thought. He looks at the motivation. That's what makes it either a fruit of the Holy Spirit or a fruit of the flesh. And that's what he says where our flesh has not those pure desires. In other words, our motivation, if you're an unbeliever, is never proper. It's never on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, even when we come to faith, Tom, even when we're in the faith, our, our motivation is not always what it should be. Sometimes we do good works in order, you know, uh, an ulterior motive might be so that person thinks we're a good person. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Even our works of righteousness apart from Christ are as filthy rags. You're kind of quoting from Romans chapter 7. Remember what Paul says there? Go ahead and remind me. Uh, the good that I want to do. The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I end up doing. Right. Exactly. And that's precisely what you just summarized. In fact, verses 2 through 4, this is a tremendous law and gospel because all three verses, verses talk about the law. So go ahead with verse 3. Now this is one this one let me just say it could be it could be easily misunderstood and I'll explain what I mean. The the third stanza it was a false misleading dream that God his law had given that sinners could themselves redeem and by their works gain heaven. The law is but a mirror bright to bring the inbred sin to light that lurks within our that lurks within our nature. You know, uh, it it sounds almost as you read this stanza, it sounds almost like the misleading dream, the false misleading dream, is uh, comes to us by God's law, and that's not what it's saying. It's saying the misleading dream is that God, that God, that God's law had given that sinners could themselves redeem. In other words, the fault is not with from God. The fault is within our own sinful misunderstanding of, of, his, of his law. Well, I, I read the first part. It was a false misleading dream that God, his law, had given that sinners could themselves redeem. That makes it very clear that the false dream is that God had given the law so we could redeem ourselves. Yeah, but it sounds, if you read that verse, it sound, doesn't it sound like the fault is within God's law, the law that God had given? That's where the fault lies. And that's not where the fault lies. The fault is not within, you can't blame God's law nor God himself. If you blame his law, you're essentially blaming God. Yeah, I don't read that that way at all. It, it seems okay. really clear to me that the dream is God gave the law so you could redeem yourself. That's so Yeah, clear. and where did that dream come from? Well, it came from our sinful self. Okay, that's my point. It didn't come from God's law. Well, you'd have to take a look at many passages in the Bible 
uh, do these things and you'll be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. Yeah, and but the fault is not the fault is not within you know, did God develop a faulty law for us? In other words? Is the fault I would, does the fault lie within the law that God has given us? No. It comes from our own sinful nature to misunderstand his law. That's yeah, the origin I, of that misleading dream. Well, we're just going to have to disagree on that. Because it's <laughs> pretty clear that the false dream is that God had given a law that could redeem us. That, that okay. seems so clear there. And well, um, we don't agree with that at all. All right, stanza four. From sin our flesh could not abstain. Sin held its sway unceasing. The task was useless and in vain. Our guilt was air increasing. None can remove sin's poison dart or purify our guileful heart. So deep is our corruption. Yeah, that's again a continuation of the teaching of the law that nothing can abstain our sin. Because sin held its sway unceasing. That was the point you were making in the previous verse. It's sin that causes us to go after a task that is useless and in vain. And in fact, it even increases our guilt. Because right. when you refuse to repent, well, then you have to do another lie to show why it's not your fault. Right. And, and so we get back to the point you're making that it's sin, and it can't remove sin's poisoned dart. Yeah, I kind of like that uh, metaphor, like being bitten by a scorpion. Um, just rubbing it doesn't really help you. No. And it cannot purify your guileful heart. Okay, stanza five. Yet as the law must be fulfilled, or we must die despairing, Christ came and has God's anger stilled, our human nature sharing. He has for us the law obeyed, and thus the Father's vengeance stayed, which over us impended. Now, if that isn't a good verse of the gospel, we just heard three verses of how the law works in our life. Now, the gospel is saying that the law must be fulfilled. Right. But we are unable to fulfill the law. So how is, from God's point of view, the law fulfilled in our lives? Christ came and, and, and has stilled God anger, God's anger. Uh, he, he has for us the law obeyed. He has obeyed yes. the law for us. That's right. So that's why he's our savior. That's why he's our advocate. He does for us what we are unable to do. And then, guess what? Gives us the obedience of the law he did to make us righteous in God's sight. Yeah, that great divine exchange that he's made with us. He's taken, yeah, our, sins of, he's taken our sins upon himself, and in exchange he gives us, our, he gives us his own righteousness. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right, six. Since Christ has full atonement made and brought to us salvation, 
Each Christian, therefore, may be glad and build on this foundation. Your grace alone, dear Lord, I plead. Your death is now my life indeed, for you have paid my ransom. Boy, is that some very, very good gospel there. Powerful stanza. Very powerful. Why? Well, because it's so rich. It's so rich in gospel, as you say. Specifically, your death death is now my life, indeed, for you have paid my ransom. Yeah, that's the key thing: that the ransom is paid. What ransom? He's bought me back. He's redeemed me. He's redeemed me from the power of the devil. From sin, death, and the power of the devil. Christ has full atonement made and brought to us salvation. Yes, atonement. I, I like dividing that word up. At one At one month. At one month, right. We are now we at become, one with God. Exactly. And that's how he has brought us salvation. All right, stanza seven. Let me not doubt, but truly see your word cannot be broken. Your call rings out, come unto me. No falsehood have you spoken. Baptized into your precious name, my faith cannot be put to shame, and I shall never perish. Yeah, the interesting thing there is the word cannot be broken. This is really critical in Lutheran theology. There were the solas or the onlys or the alones of the Reformation, Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, alone, and then finally, Scripture alone. So what does that mean, Scripture alone? Scripture alone, it's, it's, you know, our faith, our faith is not built upon people's opinions. Right. uh, Like, like, or or reason, our, our unregenerate reason, it's, it's. Our, our faith is based on, on God's word and promise. Yes, that would be capsulized by the phrase, no falsehood have you spoken, so that when God says things, then his word is true. And I really like that he brings in the sacrament even here, baptized into your precious name. That's really good. All right, stanza eight. The law reveals the, the guilt of sin and makes us conscience-stricken. But then the gospel enters in, the sinful soul to quicken. Come to the cross, trust Christ, and live. The law no peace can ever give, no comfort and no blessing. This that is makes a... It clear, makes it very clear that the law cannot save. You know, we're saved by, we're saved by God's grace uh, given us in his gospel. The, the law is not, I don't care how well you keep the Ten Commandments, There's you've, you've got to be perfect if you're ever going to save yourself through the law, and that's impossible. The law does, doesn't give us any peace. And that's why these people that live under the law, you know, they can end up dying a despairing death. It's only the, the comfort, the law doesn't give us any comfort and blessing. There's no way we can fulfill it. Yes, on Sunday's catechism class for adults, I had a sheet of paper 
with the verses that talk about under the law. And it was very clear that those who live under the law live under the thinking that by their obedience they are saved. And this makes it very clear, no, that would only strike your conscience. But then the gospel enters in. This is a wonderful distinction between law and gospel. The law, it's like a doctor, shows you what's wrong with you. The gospel comes in with the treatment. And I think he does that very well there. All right, stanza nine. Faith clings to Jesus' cross alone and rests in him unceasing. And by its fruits, true faith is known with love and hope increasing. For faith alone can justify, works serve our neighbor and supply the proof that faith is living. You know, that's really a good ending there because works do not create faith or create our salvation. They are evidence to God, proper works, that our faith is living. And, And the verse, of course, I would point to is Matthew chapter 25, the sheep and the goats. The sheep and the goats do the same works. Both visit people in prison, but only the sheep have the proper motivation in doing so from God's point of view. And so it's a great summary that by the fruits of true faith, we are known to be saved. All right, stanza 10. All blessing, honor, thanks, and praise to Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who saved us by his grace, all glory to his merit. O triune God in heaven above, you have revealed your saving love, your blessed name we hallow. That's almost a summary of the Lord's Prayer, especially that last part, your blessed name we hallow. Hallowed be thy name, yes. Yep. And uh, the part that I like is that fourth sentence, all glory to his merit. In other words, we don't have any merit at all. We don't earn our way. You cannot read this hymn and love it or sing it if you are not a Christian. That is right. Because only those who are Christians can understand this because of the faith that they have been given. Now, underneath the hymn, they have a Bible verse they wrote out. You want to read that? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That clearly summarizes what Paul Sparatus said in this hymn, Salvation unto us has come. Yeah, I'll be using it this Sunday as the serm, uh, the hymn for communion. Um, we're, we're at a point at the churches I'm at, two of them, where they still aren't singing. They're just speaking the words. And this would be a good hymn to speak rather than sing, because when you speak it, you get much more interested in what the words are saying. So often when you sing it, 
you're also concentrating on, have I got the right tune? Am I doing the right melody? Whereas this way, you can just look at the words. And I think this would also be, we've said this many a time, lay people can witness not only by using the Bible, not only by using the catechism, but also by sharing a hymn with someone. And this would be a great hymn to use. What do you think? I agree. Although I'll bet you, you're, I'll bet you the people that you lead in worship can't wait till the, they can't wait till they can start singing these hymns again. Because this is this is this is a great hymn. But boy, I tell you, I would really miss it if you couldn't sing it. Yeah, many of them don't, because they've learned that reading the hymn. In fact, that was a point that James Veltz made that uh, reading. Uh, a lot of times gives you more insight into the hymn. But it's quite possible in your congregation they would like to sing it more often. And we'll see when that's going to occur. All right, I'm Tom Baker, and you'll be listening to me and Mark Smith. Uh, next week, we'll continue with a hymn. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to be examining uh, CFW Walther's Law and Gospel, once more looking at an evening lecture and guess what? A lot of what we're going to be saying tomorrow is what this hymn has just announced. Paul Sparatus lived right around the time of Luther, was influenced by Luther, and therefore it's really important that this hymn, if possible, can be used this coming Sunday. I'm Tom Baker, Mark Smith. God bless. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.